Hello, my name is Uluwa Pelumi Demoye, creator of The Child Project. The Child Project aims to help others understand the issues children face around the world. Accompanied with each interview is a list of resources of ways you can help, as well as learn more about the topics discussed. So today we will be discussing the topic of how COVID-19 is affecting children's education. Today I'm here with Kevin Nascimento. He works as an education and emergency specialist at Plan International. And Mr. Nascimento, may you please speak about your line of work and what you do as an EIE specialist? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Kevin Osmeno. I work for Plan International, um, particularly the Finland National Office, and I'm based in the United States. Um, yeah, as you said, Palumi, I am an education and emergency specialist, um, a deployable EIE specialist. Um, all that really means is um, I provide technical support um, to our country offices and to fellow national offices if they require it. Um, on proposals um, or in pro during program implementation or during advocacy um, to ensure the quality of our education emergencies programming um, or in ensuring the quality of a proposal for EIE funding in humanitarian uh, settings. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. Um, I know that you mentioned earlier that you just um, finished a deployment, so, um, or I finished a project. Um, I don't know how much you um, can speak on that, but I'd love it if you could share just a little bit of um, maybe what that was like. Yeah, certainly, I'm happy to. Uh, yeah, so I went to our Zimbabwe country office uh, for about six weeks, and I was in the capital for just a few days and then I actually went to our project site where I met our project team. Um, you know, during COVID times it was a bit difficult, um, you know, everyone's moving to teams and everything, but just being on the ground and seeing actually our project and seeing the challenges um, and successes of where our project has, um, you know, been able to proceed regardless of COVID um, has been wonderful, it was wonderful. So what I typically do is um, Myself as an EIE specialist, I go in to make sure that not only is the project activities under the EIE scope being implemented, but they're actually being implemented with quality. Um, there's a difference between you know spending the money that's allocated to the budget and then actually making sure that we're improving the quality of education for girls, um, primarily adolescent girls and, of course, adolescent boys. Um, but our focus, of course, and plan is uh, more of a bend towards adolescent girls. Um, so, yeah. In this project, I made sure that we were actually working with our district school inspectors um, to actually create school disaster plans. And uh, in lieu of another lockdown, potentially in Zimbabwe, um, there was the release of funds for school levies or school um, school fees. We were paying school fees for a number of children. So making sure those children receive those school fees, um, actually receive those school fees, and then actually, as indicated by the funding, uh, enabled those children to continue going to school because there was the issue of children um, not being able to, or families not being able to pay for uh, children to go to school because of a loss of economic, uh, because of the economic loss as a result of COVID, as a result of a poor farming season in Zimbabwe last year. Um, and just generally over the past 10 to 15 years, the Zimbabwean, econ Zimbabwean econ economy has really deflated, um, causing a lot of actual inflation. Um, so those school levies were meant to alleviate some of that stress from our families um, and a flurry of other uh, materials 
um, information um, posters and things like that on COVID, hand washing, um, and just a flurry of other activities, uh, making sure that what we're actually promoting as Plan International under the education aspect, under the EIE aspect, is actually uh, done with quality um, rather than distributing materials, kind of the old school humanitarian distributing materials and just kind of leaving it at that, but making sure that there's actual follow-up through our activities and um, making sure that all of our programming actually adheres to the minimum standards, either the core humanitarian standards or the interagency network for education and emergencies minimum standards, the INEE minimum standards. Um, so that's really just a little bit about what I did um, in the EIE aspect. And then, of course, supporting with project management um, and uh, game planning are the other aspect of the project was um, cash and voucher assistance. So distribution of cash um, to families uh, that are vulnerable and then sexual reproductive health and rights was the other aspect of the program. So not only was my job really to look deeply into the EIE aspect, but as well as making sure from a project management perspective that our uh, CV, our cash and voucher assistance and our sexual reproductive health and rights aspects of the program are moving forward and uh, moving forward well um, and making sure to ask the technical support that I needed and that our project manager needed um, to get to that project and get to the project end well. So yeah, that's a little bit about the deployment. Wow, it sounds like you were so busy. I have to thank you again for making time for me to interview you today. Yeah, no worries, no worries. It's any any time we can talk about EIE, it's really it's really important. I think um, EIE in general in the emergency sphere, an uh, humanitarian sphere, is um, is often underfunded. It's often under talked about. Um, so yeah, any way to promote education emergencies, um, I'm very happy to make time for that. It's uh, one of the least funded. It's often not seen as a sector that should be included in emergencies. I know there was years and years of fighting even before I started getting into this sector. Um, of just convincing the general humanitarian sphere to include education um, as a life-saving and a life-sustaining uh, sector. Um, because, you know, you have shelter, you have water and sanitation and hygiene, you have food, security, and things like that, all things that really come to mind initially during an emergency. So really making sure that we get education and advocate for education emergencies in those early onset emergencies and protracted crisis. You know, I'm very happy to do that. Yeah, thank you so much for just expanding um, and going into so many different aspects. Like what you mentioned, um, I think often even when um, like the general public just thinking of, you know, access to education, they don't realize how much goes into it. And just in this short time, you've already mentioned how um, alongside with um, advocating for and working towards access to education, you also have to tie in the quality of the education and mm -hmm. um, yeah, so just so many different aspects go into um, getting people education. And obviously, um, like you just touched on a little bit um, with the aspect of how PLAN works with, um, especially getting adolescent girls uh, education, because for them, it's um, typically harder um, to get that access. So just in this short time, you've already expanded so much on um, just this topic. And yeah, thank you so much. I think it's, again, like you mentioned, really important for people to be aware of how much goes into ensuring that um, children have education. Yeah, absolutely. And you really touched on it. You really hit the nail on the head there with the, the distinction between access versus quality, I think. And that speaks at largely, if we look at more the international frameworks, we look at um, the SDGs versus the MDGs, the, millen the, the Millennium Development Goals were more about accessing. 
um, education, whereas the SDGs are now moving over to, particularly SDG number four, is looking more at that quality of education. So I think it's just a, a recognition of the global community. Whether or not we're doing it well enough at the moment um, is up to debate. Um, but yeah, I think it's moving towards that quality education and making sure that doesn't mean that just, I agree that if you're in class, it's better than potentially, especially for adolescent girls. I know in COVID, for example, um, one of the things that we were speaking about with the district school inspector and the location that I was at was during COVID, we saw adolescent pregnancies skyrocket in that area. Um, school offers protection. School offers, you know, um, companionship among friends. School offers uh, guidance um, when speaking to, for example, guidance counseling teachers in these schools. So. Um, when out of school, there's a likelihood that some of that, you know, adolescent pregnancies or child protection issues can come up. Um, so it's just kind of, even in a uh, not quote unquote conflict area, there is still because of COVID this, um, you know, likelihood that adolescent girls will be more or less um, more impacted by the impacts of uh, more impacted by um, the effects of COVID. Um, and oftentimes it's not really brought up in statistics and things like that. It's kind of brushed off um, in a lot of these areas where um, teenage pregnancy isn't as isn't uncommon, but it's still frowned upon. And I know Zimbabwe in particular has enacted an education act a few years ago saying that teenage girls that are pregnant are should be allowed to come to school um, previously. Before that act, teenage girls were not allowed to come back to school if they were pregnant, thereby essentially ending their education career. Um, there's still a lot of advocacy to do in that regard because we have, um, you know, even though that's a policy, it doesn't always translate well into practice. Um, so there's still instances even where girls themselves don't feel comfortable going back to school if they're pregnant. So, um, And, you know, as the research shows that the higher levels of education that uh, adolescent girl, a girl attains, you know, it just comes tenfold, fivefold of just what they can attain in their life in the future. So. Um, yeah, education really spans across all the sectors in my mind, rather than just, you know, literacy, numeracy, and um, social-emotional skills. It really can offer so many different benefits that are outside of the classroom, in addition to inside the classroom, of course. Wow, thank you so much for speaking on that. Again, I think it's really important for um, people to understand, like you just said, how education and the access to education and just so many different aspects of it um, affect so many different parts of a child's life and especially for um, young adolescent girls. Uh, something that I'd like to ask is um, regarding mm -hmm. something you mentioned earlier about how the kind of the fight to include, you know, education and um, what, mm. like addressing education in emergencies as well as um you know like fighting for funding and things like that considering you mm. know like just in this short time we talked about how important it is why do you think that that struggle was there i mean i mean i off the top of my head just thinking about it um people just don't think that resuming education if we look at education in the box and think of it as just like i said before reading and mathematics, um, people aren't really going to see that as a huge need during the first 72 hours of an emergency um, or even during the first three months of an emergency. It's really making sure that all the funding goes towards shelter, health, um, food security, and making sure those fundamental aspects of essentially living are taken care of. Um, and while I don't disagree, um, there needs to be an 
oftentimes communities will say, children will say, um, you know, I wish I was back in school. I wish I was with my, with my friends. I wish I really was just in a, and education provides so many different aspects of safety and security that are, yes, you might have in a, a refugee camp, you might be able to get a tent and you might be able to get your food uh, quota or food supply for that month. Um, but then what again, after you have those initial, um, you know, disbursements, there's, you know, idleness, there's nothing to do. There's, there's stress, there's trauma perhaps incurred because of what the, the conflict that was at hand. So a lot of those things can be dealt with in school. Um, and school can, doesn't have to be a, like a building. It can be under a tree. It can be anywhere. It can be a temporary learning space. Um, all that we're really saying is that, and so all that to say that if, you look at education in a silo of just an opportunity to teach reading and mathematics, then yeah, I think the argument can be made that perhaps that not, that's not as important as those other sectors. But when you see education, and that's kind of where the argument started to build, is when you see education as a way to involve psychosocial support, child protection, um, and you can do food, you can do school feeding, so you're not only doing supporting um, supporting children or supporting families with school uh, uh, food supplies. Because um, we know there's also the dangers in food security and food supplies that um, not every family member will be given the same amount of food, particularly children um, and particularly adolescents and particularly girls. Um, so making sure that school feeding is used as a way to draw in kids to school, um, if not just to just be amongst their friends, but just to be able to cope with the trauma of whatever they've gone with together, to cope, to be with a teacher that's at least giving them a sense of routine, because oftentimes we forget that school as, as frustrating as it can be sometimes when you're in school, in high school, in middle school or college, it is a routine and it's something that you can fall back on regardless of what else is going on with your life. So when everything else is going kind of crazy in your life, that sense of routine, that sense of, okay, I need to be at school from 9 to 1 p.m., that's something that you know, okay, that part of my day is taken care of. I'm going to push forward with it. You know, I'm going to be amongst colleagues. That, that's the psychosocial support that really is um, – not measured at the moment. It's really not just a test you can take at school. It's more the uh, the mental health and uh, as we as we call it MHPSS, mental health and psychosocial support um, that we can provide to our kids and also to our adults. And you know, if we have those children going to school, then at least parents can then find a way to either find employment or figure out their themselves because we also need to be taking care of the caregivers as well. And they often are burden so much during a conflict that if there's any way to take to take care of them as well we can do that through school yeah again thank you so much for just expanding on on this topic i think yeah it's really important for people to understand um you know like you mentioned when often when people think of emergency situations and addressing the needs that need to be um, met uh education isn't like the first thought you know uh, like not just um, to the general public, but, you know, just like um, generally across all sectors. So I think um, reminding people the like importance of how uh, education just affects so many different aspects of both um, a children's life and like even how you touched on now, you know, the lives of uh, a children's a child's parents, um, you know, is really important and reminding people the importance of, you know, advocating for, you know, access and quality education. So again, thank you so much for speaking on that. Certainly, yeah, no worries. All right, so um, now we'll be kind of moving on to our, the main questions that I was planning 
on asking you today and um you know already you've kind of touched a bit on them but the first question mm. would be uh what would you say are the projected and or present present effects of the impact COVID-19 has had on the education of children? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question and we could talk for an hour <laughs> on all the impacts. Um, but yeah, as we talked about, uh, as I touched a bit briefly on, there's, you know, the lack of education and major losses um, in gains made by children. And, you know, when we talk about education, we also have to speak be mindful of the different levels of education. Um, I'm in I'm particular towards the early childhood development. Um, that's where a lot of my work is. Um, so early childhood development between zero to six years old, and then also depending on the country, and then also of course primary school. So that's where a lot of my programming tends to focus on. Um, so especially in those formative years, um, any kind of learning loss is you know massive. Um, and so we not only learning loss but social skills loss and um, everything that kind of we take for granted in terms of interacting with friends, um, interacting with teachers, interacting, you know, inculcating respect, all these kind of different fundamentals of who it is to be a human and to like be a member of society. Um, if you lose that at the ECD and primary school level, that, that'll have large impacts uh, for the remainder of your life. And it takes a strong education system to really fix that or to really adapt to that. And oftentimes there isn't a stronger education system to really recover those losses. Um, and a lot of locations we're working with, um, and even in the United States, we're not, we're going to see those, that, that impact really take hold in a few, you know, in a generation when we have um, children that didn't have the benefits of ECD, or early childhood development, or school at early primary school, and also at the kind of preschool we call in the States. Um, so that'll take hold there. Um, as I mentioned, particularly for adolescent girls, there's, you know, teenage pregnancy, there's being early, there's child marriage, there's all sorts of um, impacts that really out, yeah, really just focus on girls and um, they're just kind of lost into that system. And um, we've kind of taken away those, that, that aspect of their future that really could have really promoted them through the system. Um, through accessing education um, now that they've, you know, been married off or now had a child or something like that. Um, and in general, um, yeah, we're just going to probably see, you know, the, the positive impact, of course, um, rather than just all the negative impacts, the positive impact is that there have been modifications to virtual classrooms and virtual training. So there's not only uh, radio-based programming, there's um, hybrid classrooms, there's you know, if there's access to Wi-Fi, if there's access to that technology, um, there's, of course, those virtual classrooms as well. So there is a positive. I mean, of course, in those positives, there's also a discrepancy based on poverty and things like that. Um, but, you know, take the good with the bad and see where we can improve the bad. Um, so, yeah, there's a, you know, there's the multifaceted, especially the education system, um, depending on where you want to look more deeply, we can talk about that. But, yeah, I think um, those are kind of some of the things that come to mind at first. Yeah, um, yeah, thank you again for um, expanding on that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting um, how you mentioned the importance of education in the aspect of helping to lift children out of certain um, situations, like the, how the cycle of education can really be useful in promoting children, especially young girls, um, into futures that um, are a lot better than the uh, places that they come from.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. So um, I know you touched on this a little bit, but, um, you know, as far as COVID-19, you know, the effects it's had on education in terms of um, access, you know, especially with things being virtual and, and, you know, with technology and everything, um, how has that kind of played into the access to education? The the aspect of technology, sorry, I missed missed the beginning of that question, sorry, please. No, 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 you're fine. Yeah, yeah. And the aspect of, you know, technology and how things are more virtual and online based, how has that affected mm. the access to education? Sure, yeah. So in terms of access, uh, that has a lot to do with kind of your socioeconomic status. First and foremost, I think it's the first gatekeeper for that. Um, and then depending on how much support you can get, that'll, you know, enable you. So, um, you know, in capital cities, for example, when COVID first started, I was in Uganda. Um, and so students in Kampala, the capital city, um, were able to switch to a virtual classroom fairly quickly. I'm not going to say, I mean, every nation had its challenges. So um, there's no star world, like there's no star of moving over to virtual classrooms because it was so new to everybody, um, really to, unless, you know, private schools or things like that. Um, so in public schools, yeah, if in the capital city, you were able to really transfer over and you didn't really miss a beat. Um, and then you start to go down the socioeconomic uh, ladder and then you start seeing radio-based programming, um, maybe as a supplement to the virtual classroom. So hopefully you can get into the virtual classroom, but if you can't, you can try the radio-based programming. Um, and then, then we start seeing where the cracks start forming. Um, even with virtual classrooms, some students don't learn that way. Um, they prefer to, you know, be kinesthetic and seeing it and feeling it and touching it and more, you know, visual or auditory, you know, different learning styles. Um, but, you know, when you get really to the rural areas where you get to areas that where, you know, education really has an impact, um, you're seeing that education isn't being provided or if it's being provided, it's being provided in an ad hoc way um, with not a lot of follow up. Um, so, you know, you see aspects of um, radio based programming, but sometimes the radio station, for example, where I just was in Zimbabwe, the radio station that was being supported by UNICEF, um, they did an amazing program super cool um but unfortunately it was the radio station wasn't actually able to reach a lot of these rural towns that are outside of the kind of the main district in that area um so again if you're on the outskirts if you're in farmland or something like that you'll miss out on those opportunities um so you know you go now into community contracts you kind of do these smaller community um community classrooms um outside or in smaller groups so there was definitely interesting modifications uh, to making sure that access to education. A lot of people did fall through the cracks, but because of the because of technology, a lot of students did continue to uh, access education. Um, and I think even in the United States, we're having conversations, I think even in these kind of um, United States, the UK, we're still having conversations. We're having conversations right now about, again, access to education versus quality to education. Just because there's kids on the Teams or on the Zoom, are they actually there? You know, are you, are you, yeah paying attention, you engage by information. So like those are conversations that we're now having even in nations where we do typically have access um, to these things. So more to think we're not even having those conversations of quality, but we're having conversations about access um, in locations where plan t- tends to work. Yeah, again, thank you. Um, I think you touched on so many aspects and, you know, even just, um, 
speaking about how um, access has been affected, you know, um, considering like socioeconomic status and, you know, going, mm -hmm. you, you go down and like looking at it, um, how, you know, the transition from in-person to virtual or just, you know, getting access to the means of virtually communicating with um, your educators, how that is affected by, you know, um, your socioeconomic status. And then also touching on a uh, aspect that's, I think, you know, when people think about kind of how this pandemic has affected education, um, that might be overlooked, but, you know, like the style of learning, like you mentioned, you know, just like how um, the quality of education can be affected just because like this isn't for some students, this type of format is just it doesn't work for them. So, yeah, thank you so much for um, like speaking on that and, you know, expanding that. I think it's so important for people to understand the different aspects of this. And you even mentioned how, you know, kind of in a positive light, how education, ha I mean, how technology has allowed for the continuous access to education. So yeah, again, I think it's just really important that people understand all these different aspects. So thank you on touching on them. Sure thing, yeah, no worries. All right, so um, this next question, you kind of already you know mentioned a lot about, but uh, it is how are girls specifically impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic in regards to their education? Yeah, um, definitely. Um, I think I've touched on this a couple of times, but yeah, there's the child marriage, there's teenage pregnancy. Um, in general, when we see, um, especially in locations that are have multiple children, um, we're seeing that, and this is before COVID, and it's just been exacerbated during COVID. Um, if you're going to have to choose between a girl or a boy to go to school, um, more often than not, you're going to find that the boy is chosen and then the girl is staying at home to complete house chores or, um, you know, to follow along with, you know, the traditional roles of women. Um, so trying to break that has been even harder during COVID. Um, I think we're also seeing, interestingly enough, um, at least what we were seeing before was when we we're looking at the aspects of sexual reproductive health and rights, um, because of, um, you know, the, the lack of access when they're out of school to those things, um, we might see an increase both in boys and girls, um, you know, in whether it's uh, just not having a lot of knowledge around their sexual reproductive health and rights and having access to that information, um, despite really wanting it. So when you go to health clinics, you might have uh, nurses or health workers, especially in close-knit communities, smaller communities where the nurses know your parents or they know your folks, um, adolescent girls are going to be more shy about reaching out to those nurses as opposed to their teachers, um, just because the nurses might tell their parents, you know, oh, your daughter came and asked me about condoms, your, your daughter came and asked me about uh, family planning services and things like that. Um, so that generates a really stressful conversation for adolescent girls not being able to get that knowledge, that kind of comprehensive sexuality education. Um, you know, and we see girls oftentimes not being promoted when it comes to virtual education in terms of who gets what during the classes. You know, even if both children, if even if both genders are in the classroom, we're going to see boys get more of a, more of that that data bundle, you know, because we're going to, you know, data bundle, Wi-Fi isn't just kind of just streaming, you got to kind of buy those data bundles. So 
um, families are going to be more likely to support those data bundles for their older children or their older boys as opposed to their older girls or kind of vice versa. They're just in general boys, as regardless of older or younger, they're boys as opposed to, uh, to their girls. So, yeah, those are just kind of some of those aspects that are really kind of shining um, uh, during COVID time. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting, you know, how COVID has kind of um, been this amplifier for the issues already present for girls in regards to their mm-hmm. education. And um, for a lot of people, especially kind of in my generation, um, you know, it's opened a lot of people's eyes to, you know, these issues, even though they existed prior to COVID, just because they've been like so tremendously um, amplified. A lot of people have mm-hmm. been. Yeah, looking more, especially, you know, like I mentioned in my generation, just like getting more involved and more, you know, interested in in this topic. And and I think that, you know, you addressed the access to, you know, reproductive education. And I think when thinking of education, you know, when we mentioned access to education, I don't think, you know, like a lot of people don't have that in their heads like oh not just you know the typical education for right. of you know being in school yeah and so yeah i think you know as someone who you know works um to promote the access and you know quality of education of um young adolescent children and young adolescent girls i think you know it's so important to speak on that aspect and how to mention how that is a part of quality education so yeah i just have to thank you again for speaking on that and you know helping people to understand yeah absolutely and yeah i think that's uh i think about when i was in school and like you know high school and things like that and college there's like those those aspects are so often taken for granted, but you know, when you're really in need of those, it's especially not only access to that education, but that in an unbiased way or an un, you know, you have, we have, we saw nurses when we worked with nurses that refused to work with adolescent girls um, because the consideration is that if you teach a girl this, then they're just going to go off and, you know, do what they do, um, regardless if they were going to or not. It's just, we just need to give information now. It's not a permission slip just to go and do whatever you want. Um, So there's a lot of that advocacy that needs to take place. Um, So like you said, it really brings to light and amplifies those challenges that were already there. And now it's just made even clearer because of COVID. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think again, you know, touching on the aspect of kind of how even um, how girls are treated in school versus, you know, boys in um, certain certain areas and certain situations, I think it's very interesting. Like, like it's not something that um, is typically thought of when, again, like speaking on access and quality to education. And like you've mentioned for you just now, um, you know, the unbiased uh, access to education, you know, and how education is thought of in certain spaces. So yeah, again, thank you for speaking on that. It's really, it's really interesting to uh, think about how, you know, so many different aspects go into you, like we've been saying this whole time, so many different aspects go into, you know, ensuring education for, for children. Exactly. Yeah. No, you're welcome. So this is our last question um, for today. And it's, how do you think, and again, you've um, kind of mentioned, uh, talked about this, you know, previously with just, you know, answering some previous questions. But the question is, how do you think education has 
or will change because of the pandemic? Oh boy. <laughs> um, how will it change because of the pandemic? I think, I'd like to think, or I'd like to imagine that because of the pandemic, we've seen just how important it is to, fund, to access education, to access quality education. Um, and I think we saw, at least from like an administrator look or from a head teacher perspective, I think we really saw that it's quite easy to adapt. Not easy, but it's, it's, we can't adapt to new, level, new forms of education. Um, and we need to really be better prepared for the future, for future disasters. Um, and so COVID has really brought it to light for me in terms of school preparedness. Um, you know, schools, normally organizations like Plan International, Save the Children, IRC, will work with schools to, you know, develop these school disaster plans or conduct risk uh, assessments. Um, but they're, you know, they're just like rainfall or kind of something random, like a classroom falls apart a little bit. But this was an opportunity. This is an, this really has, for me, changed the mentality of a lot of head teachers and district, district and provincial educators um, in countries where Plan works because, and I think in the United States and um, as well, uh, simply because we are now fully aware of the fact that something bad can happen um, and we need to be better prepared for it. And in that preparation, we do identify those gaps. Um, that have existed, but maybe we took for granted or we're like, oh, no, nothing will really happen that serious. But now that we do, well, this thing has happened, we should really find a way to make sure that when if there's another lockdown or if there is, regardless if there's not a lockdown, if we're in regular times, quote unquote, um, you know, how do we make sure that all kids are accessing education? How do we make sure that even if you are at home, um, you can still get quality education? So I think it's really opened up our imaginations for what education could be, um, primarily around um, making sure that vulnerable populations or that kid that um, might not have been able to attend because of, you know, having another job or being a young parent is now able to attend. And there's a flexibility now to that education system where you don't have to be sitting in the classroom um, as long as you're in the classroom somehow during the day and engaging meaningfully with your professor or with your teacher. I think there's an interesting aspect to that as well. Um, and then in more developing countries and things like that, I think we're seeing that as a result of the pandemic, um, we need to really, I think there's going to be a change in terms of the fact that we've always had this kind of mystery group in humanitarian work as to the vulnerable populations. It could be uh, female-headed households, it could be single-headed households, it could be child-headed households, it could be child households with people over 65 years old. Any, you know, there's a number of criteria depending on the country and depending on the context you're working with. But let, suffice to say that there's always this kind of amorphous, vulnerable group that we always try to get to beyond just the, beyond the group that we're working with. Um, so I think that amorphous group of vulnerability really is now able to be reached even easier. Um, I think it's no longer an, an issue of act, like reach to those populations um, because we will be able to and we should be able to get our programming to all populations regardless of vulnerable or not vulnerable or semi-vulnerable. Um, so I think in that way. Um, also for those kind of district schools and those more community schools, I think there's more of an effort to make sure to get plans in place um, to make sure that even if you don't have access to radios, if you don't have access to 
Wi-Fi or things like that. Even if you, you know, you prepare and you set up sites with the children saying, here, we're going to meet in this small group for, you know, two hours to teach about this subject. And then you move over to the next one. But having plans with the teachers, having plans with the head teachers together um, would be ideal. So those are just some things that kind of come to mind um, about, you know, how education might change in the future. A bit more on the practical side as opposed to the theory, but um, my brain's still a bit in the in practical mode after Zimbabwe. <laughs> Yeah, no, thank you. I think that was so perfect, you know, the the aspects that you touched on, especially, you know, talking about preparedness. I think, you know, I think when people are generally thinking about, you know, topics such as these and, you know, you know, issues addressed in humanitarian work, um, I think with education specifically, preparedness for, you know, drastic situations like this is often overlooked. So I think, you know, this being brought to the forefront and, you know, with that, the the um, new, new mechanisms and new ways that uh, can be used to prepare for, you know, situations like this, like the use of technology and also um, taking into consideration, you know, making sure everyone, like you mentioned, you know, whether it's in vulnerable, semi-vulnerable situations has that access and that quality of education is really important. So I think, you know, touching on the practical aspects was very perfect in allowing people to understand how kind of, you know, how education has, you know, been changed due to this pandemic and how it's, you know, gonna, gonna be moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And as you're speaking, it just kind of brought to light as well. I think one thing that we're seeing around the world is, um, people actually get to see how hard it is to be a teacher. I mean, it's particularly parents with kids, you know, you can usually just throw them to the school and then the teachers, you know, you trust the teachers to take care of the kids for the, for the day. And then they come back at the end of the day. Um, but I think as teachers are realize, our parents are realizing how much effort actually goes into education. I think there's going to be um, a deeper respect for education and a deeper respect for teachers. Um, that should have been there the whole time. Um, but I think now we really understand what teachers go through and what what teachers need to be doing, or what support teachers need. And not only that, but there's now, I think, a better connection between communities and the school itself. It's no longer two kind of silos. Um, there's a conversation, there's stronger conversation happening between the school administration and, you know, PTAs and the parents at large, because there needs to be that communication. Um, and so I think Traditionally, um, yeah, as I said, parents would just kind of throw their kids to the school and then hope everything goes well. But now there's, a, I think, a better appreciation not only for the teachers and the school administration, but also now, conversely, there's more accountability expected uh, now that the teach, now that parents know what should be happening. I think now parents will be asking for more accountability, which I think will translate into um, stronger teachers, stronger programming, so long as the you know, the resources and funding and the training comes along with it um, eventually. Yeah, what you just touched on, I think I think it's so great because um, like you mentioned how just people's eyes have been opened to the difficulties of what being a teacher is like. And again, that deeper appreciation, you know, can only lead to um, good things in terms of especially like um, quality of education and appreciating our teachers and making sure that teachers have what they need in order to provide that quality education. And then, you know, 
you also touched on the strengthening of communities, which I think is something that, you know, people have noticed, you know, kind of in all aspects, but, you know, with education in particular, um, you know, that strengthening of community and, you know, more conversations, more more accountability, like you mentioned, again, can only lead to, you know, better access and better quality. So, yeah, I think I think it's so great that you spoke on that and, you know, reminding people how important it is, like those, those, all of those aspects, like building community and, you know, appreciation of our teachers and our educators, how that also plays into, you know, quality and, you know, of, of education. Yeah, absolutely. Right, so that that was my last question. Um, thank you again, uh, Mr. Nascimento, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with me today. So um, at this time, I would like to ask if you have any final words for the people listening. Um, yeah, I think as I started the presentation, as I started the conversation with you, I think a bit of a lawnmower. Um, as I started the conversation, I think we need to be doing uh, more and just promoting as much as we can uh, education and emergencies programming, and not only EIE, but also, in my opinion, child protection emergencies, CPIE. Um, so making sure that EIE and CPIE continue to be promoted and talked about, um, because these are those underlying sectors that um, really, at the end of the day, kind of build that resilience in children and build that resilience in caregivers, um, both in school and out of school. Um, so, you know, something that we didn't really touch upon in this interview was, you know, we were talking a lot about formal education, but there's a whole other side of non-formal education, um, which really does play a role in a lot of these COVID times as well. Um, so, yeah, I think we just, yeah, to keep the conversation going about EIE, uh, CPIE, doing as much as you can to learn about these two sectors um, and then um, really engaging as much as you can. There's, there's a lot of need. It's such a new sector, really. I'd say it's only, it's only honestly like 20 to 30 years old. Um, so it's still building. We still have a lot to learn and we're still collecting data and the data that we are collecting, we're still learning how to analyze it. Um, so there's more to do and more to keep up with. So now's the time to really get into it and get in on it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I have to say there. Wow, thank you. Thank you again so very, very much for taking that time and um, to speak with me today. It really, I really appreciate it. Um, so this brings us to the end of our interview. Thank you again, Mr. Nasimeno. Uh, please remember to share this episode with others and remember to support the rights and protection of children everywhere.